Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. Tim Weisberg here. The silent assassin Matt Costa wreaking havoc over in the behind the boards. How are you doing tonight, Matt? Are you uh, spooktacular as always? I'm very spooktacular. And uh, what have you been up to? We, you know, we hardly talked to you at all last week while we talked to our Gary Patterson. You didn't have much mm-hmm. to say. I was surprised. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. My week is pretty boring. Really? This is the only exciting part of my week. It, and it is pretty exciting. We do look it forward is. to this all week long. Uh, maybe because uh, we don't really do anything the rest of the week. It's probably our own fault. Yeah, we're pretty lame. Yeah, we are kind of lame. But, uh, uh, you know, lameness. There's, there's two hours out of the week that we're cool. For two hours, we are cool. At least to Keith. Uh, you at think least to so? Keith, we're cool. Keith, do you think we're cool? I think you're very cool. All right. All right. <laughs> and so, uh, kind of ruining the surprise there, uh, Matt Moniz not with us tonight. So that's uh, why we are so cool because we don't have to deal with him tonight. Just kidding. <laughs> We, uh, we have the science advisor, Matt Moniz, on assignment down in New York City. Matt, you want to you take that? I said he's down in New York City. New York City. Yeah, he's down in New York City uh, with Bud Hopkins at a UFO seminar. And we will check in with him a little bit later on in the program. Uh, tonight we have a guest host sitting in in the science advisor chair tonight. We have demonologist and near-paranormal founder Keith Johnson. How are you tonight, Keith? I'm fine, thank you. It's good to see you, Tim and Matt. It's it's always special when we can get you to come into the studio because we know for one night the demons that plague this place are going to leave us alone. Although we've been good since since you blessed the studio. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I hear you might be uh, moving locations though, and you might need another blessing. Uh, we are we are uh, in the process of maybe refurbishing things here. I don't know. I'm just making that assumption. Well, you know what happens whenever somebody does refurnishings in a building. It just opens the door for them all to come out. And exactly. I think the. Uh, more of the technical demons will be the problem this time around. So True. But it was a good combination last time between your blessing and, and Matt figuring out some more stuff here uh, that things have worked out. But every once in a while, they still sneak in. We're, we'll be listening to the show uh, because we, we listen to it again during the week just to critique ourselves and look for things we can make better. And uh, you'll hear something in the background and be like, oh, we're getting EVPs <laughs> over the show. So and it, it does happen from time to time. People will put on the message board that they heard something weird, and we have to explain to them, oh, no, that's just a creaky you know, microphone arm. <laughs> you know, that's just that noise there. So, But, uh, hey, if you do hear anything, just let us know. Email us, spookycareer with spookysouthcoast.com, and we'll check it out. So, But we are going to have, uh, as our special guest tonight, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will join us in just a few minutes to talk about magic and alchemy. Uh, something that we haven't really touched on here on Spooky South Coast, and that is the the dark arts as well as the the good magic. Because y- you might be under the impression that you know there's white magic and black magic and all this stuff that we've heard, but uh, Rosemary will talk to us and tell us essentially, you no know, magic is magic. It's all how it's used, and we'll talk about the various ways that it's been used uh, over the years, and as well as uh, like I said, checking in with Matt Moniz later on, and we'll also have the return of the week and weird after. Uh, putting it on vacation last week due to the outstanding discussion we had with our Gary Patterson. And uh, we're definitely going to have Gary back on in the future. 
we will talk more about the paranormal side of some of what he was talking about because we touched on a lot of these curses and, and myths and legends in rock and roll, and we didn't get into enough of the paranormal side. Uh, but while we're talking about that, there is a, a medium and a paranormal researcher by the name of Chip Coffee who wrote an article in this month's edition of Haunted Times Magazine, the winter edition of Haunted Times Magazine, where he talks about whether or not Mark David Chapman was plagued by demons when he shot John Lennon. So you want to check that article out, and we're going to have Chip on sometime in the future to talk about that. We're going to see if we can get him and Gary on the phone together and, and have them do a little back and forth on that. I think that it should be fun. That sounds interesting, very interesting. And speaking of interesting discussion, uh, we have uh, coming up, uh, when is it, February, the class coming to New Bedford again? Uh, February 16th. And that will be the return of the Ghost Hunting uh, 101 class that you do Exactly. Here We're giving Island. a class in Providence on February 2nd. It's Friday evening and also February 16th in New Bedford, which will also be a Friday evening. So we're very much looking forward to that. And uh, if you want to sign up for the class, you can go to southcoastlearning.org or to nearparanormal.com. Right. We have the link right on our site. And for those who haven't taken the class already, and hopefully you know, most of our audience probably has, but there's a lot of new listeners coming in this year, uh, why don't you explain to them what you go over in the class? We go over ghost hunting essentially, essentially from the beginning. It doesn't matter if you're an experienced investigator or whether you're doing this for the first time. I think anybody could get something out of this class because we cover the basics from beginning to end, from the equipment we use to the initial interview, how we set up an investigation, how we go through an investigation, right up to the very end to when we actually deal with something which may or may not be a paranormal cause and the follow-up. So it, it gets pretty detailed. We cover as much as we can within the space of a couple of hours. And uh, it is cutting it close to because I remember when we when we attended the class, uh, it was, you know, you had the South Coast Learning people saying, okay, come on, we got to close the building up because yes, there's right. just so much to cover. Oh, there, is, there is so much to cover. And we invite people to bring their own evidence, evidence as well so we can review that. And we also show at the end of the class, we try to fit in actual uh, footage of a real case of possession which we consider to be genuine and that is just some uh, incredible footage uh, as well and if you're a big brian harnwell fan you don't want to miss that either because uh, we still we still rattle razzm about that a little bit too oh yes yeah so but uh, you you don't want to miss that so february 16th here in new bedford february 2nd in providence where are the classes in providence where do they hold them right on Wayland square so it'll give the exact directions right on our site as you queue into it so it's right on Wayland square very easy to get to there's plenty of parking there and uh, one of the other ventures that Nier is engaged in is the Ghosts are Nier television program. Oh, yes. And uh, you recently had our science advisor, Matt Moniz, on the show. And maybe that's why he's not here. Maybe he's in <laughs> New York City working on a television deal now. Yeah, he's basking in the limelight now that he's been on our show. <laughs> he was an excellent guest. Excellent. We had a great time with Matt on our show, and we're, we're glad to have him. And that is airing now on, on the Cox Systems? Yes, yes, it is currently airing now. And also we upload our episodes to our own site at nearparanormal.com. So anybody who wants to go in at their leisure can just queue in and, and download these episodes. You can watch them. If you click on the links uh, on the website, it'll open up in a Google Videos window. And uh, if you have a, a video iPod or some sort of video player that you want to take them with you on the go, there's a, a way there to download them and load them right up on that. I did it. Uh, it probably took me maybe six or seven minutes to download each show and move it to the iPod. It's great, and it's a, a good way to watch it you know, on the go. And for those of us who can't get the show yet, and we're going to work on trying to get it up here for you. I mean, we, we've got, we've got, we'll get into it a little bit later because we're going to try to talk to Penny Dreadful about something she has going on. But we have a network built up through her of local cable affiliates all throughout the area, and we can find people to sponsor it in each place. And Maybe you want to sponsor you know, the Penny Dreadful show or Keith's show somewhere 
where there isn't coverage for it, uh, just give us an email, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, and we'll get you in touch with them and see if we can spread the word here. Because, you know, if if it's quality, it should be out there, and your show is quality. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Just some of the guests you've had on. Uh, uh, some people we've talked to, like Renee Smith and Tom D'Agostino, but also Denise Jones, mm-hmm. uh, and you had Matt Sinsigali from NEPVRG. It's true. Uh, these are some of the people who... Sometimes they, they're, I don't want to say overlooked, but they kind of fly under the radar of mm-hmm. the paranormal media. And you're bringing their expertise out there, and, and it's subjects that aren't usually talked about. So Right. We recently had John Zaffis on, too, doing a tribute to his late uncle, Ed Warren. So. And John is just, you can just turn on the microphone and let him talk, and the stories he can tell are, well, it's the same with you when we have you here, though. They're just the stories you can tell us. It, it'll make the hairs in the back of your neck stand up, but then when you think about it later on, you say, gee, there really is something to all this. And uh, so maybe you've had an experience and you want to share. Maybe you have some questions about magic and alchemy, which we'll get into in just a few minutes. You can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. The, uh, the Internet working tonight, Matt? That's a negatory. Negatory. No. Okay, so there's no Internet here, so you can't post questions for us on the message board. But that means that you have to call in if you have a question. You can't uh, hide beneath the anonymity of the Internet. You have to call in, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And, of course, if you would like to engage in some live chats, there is one going on at sscfan.com and the spiritedsociety.org. So we won't be able to check in, but we trust uh, that Carl and I think it's done that, actually. Dot net? Yes. Okay. Well, either way, try it. Whichever one has the cattle skull on the left-hand side, that's the right one. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and on the other side, we will talk to Rosemary Ellen Guiley about magic and alchemy here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast. The one chooses the wizard. Magic happens. It's not always clear why. All right. It is magic. It's the magic of the silent assassin. His uh, audio production magic. Now, are you uh, are you trained in any kind of uh, magical, mystical ways when it comes to audio? Or just uh, a solid basis in sound production and... I take it more of a scientific approach. You take a scientific approach? Hmm. Okay. Well, that's good because uh, you do a, a, a darn good job of that. And well, thank you. No, no pilot? Or do we have pilot coming up later? I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <We've> <laughs> It'd probably be the first time pilot was played over a non-easy listening channel in 30 years, but we'll, uh, we'll get into that later. Because right now we have on the line Rosemary Ellen Guiley, or as we like to call her, Rosemary what, Matt? Rosemary Encyclopedia, Guyley. That's right, because she has written more than 30 books, including the one we'll be talking about tonight, The Encyclopedia of Magic and Alchemy. It's her latest book. It's available now. You can get it through her website, visionaryliving.com, as well as amazon.com and any fine book retailer, uh, which I don't know which ones we can mention on the show because I'm not up to date on which ones uh, are advertising ones. But you can uh, – I, I know where you can get it if you need to. You can get it at uh, – um, can I even say their name either? All right, Crystal Expectations. So uh, <laughs> how are you doing tonight, Rosemary? Sorry to make you hang on during that long introduction. Hey, I'm doing really good, Tim, and it's a pleasure to be with Keith tonight, too. Hi, Rosemary. So nice to talk with you again. Right. It's, uh, it's always nice when you can put people together that are old friends and, and old colleagues, and they haven't really had the chance to work together or talk to each other, and 
on a Saturday night like this, you never know what can happen. Well, magic is going to happen tonight. I hope so. Now, uh, with all the different various uh, subject matter that you've written about, I mean, dreams, uh, you've written about you know ghosts and hauntings, uh, different aspects of the paranormal, and magic is probably one of the ones that I think out of a lot of the subjects that you cover would be the hardest sell, yet it seems to be the one that has the most uh, deeply rooted history. Magic underlies the paranormal. It's very much linked into all of the topics that I've written about, prayer and healing, intuition, dreams. Uh, there's a magical aspect to the paranormal, uh, the way people experience the paranormal. Magic is about bringing things into being, and it's, it's not... Um, fantasy it's it's not a mickey mouse and a wizard hat it's a real power and i thought it was very important to put together a book to talk about real magic our long history of it how it works and give people some ideas about how they can bring the power of magic into their own lives but it seems uh, at least in my discussions with people uh, you know it's hard to shake that that uh, stigma that has come with the term magic uh, just lately, I guess probably in the last century or so, uh, so where uh, to the common man, magic is really just a form of entertainment, but the prestidigitation that we see in these stage shows are vastly different from what actual true magic is. Actually, there's a teeny bit of real magic and stage magic. There's a, a form of stage magic known as bizarre magic, and uh, that that's concerning magicians who have experience something extraordinary in the process of doing stage magic that sometimes there's an element that they can't quite explain about how something works magic has unfortunately been either trivialized or demonized it's lumped in with sorcery evil acts evil people uh, it's trivialized as cartoony entertainment and that's unfortunate because it's a very real force in daily life so much of uh, modern-day beliefs and philosophy uh, in terms of spirituality are, you know, go hand-in-hand hand with these magic beliefs that have been around since uh, pretty much the dawn of man. Uh, is there a way, is there a, such a fine line separating, you know, magic and spirituality in your mind? It's a very fine line. It gets very nebulous. And, in fact, I find that to be the case in the paranormal and, and spiritual and mystical in general. It's very difficult to draw black and white demarcations from one area to another. They all kind of bleed together. Prayer, for example, is a form of magic, and many people would uh, object to that sort of definition. But prayer is an act of using your, your thought, your will, your imagination, and working in concert with a higher power to bring about some sort of change in the physical environment. Those are the fundamentals of magic. So praying is a form of magic. And, I mean, let's face it. I mean, you mentioned it in the book, and if you think about it and you think about what these true definitions of magic are, uh, you can look at Jesus as a magician. Well, in fact, many commentaries have been written about Jesus as a magician. Going back to the Old Testament, uh, the acts of uh, Abraham uh, and, and Moses, for example, uh, have an element of magic to them. The, the pharaohs are described as magicians, but the representatives of God are described as something else, that their power is described in different ways, and yet they do the same things. 
Yet the same book, the Bible, uh, actually comes down against magic. And yet in Christian uh, tradition, if I may, they also speak of the Magi coming to present gifts to the baby Jesus, and they were known as Magi. So they were steeped in what was known as magic at the time. They probably were uh, very well educated in the esoteric arts. Magic is... uh, it's a way of having, um, being empowered spiritually, actually, and I think that uh, it doesn't deserve to be demonized at all. But do you, do you feel that, because uh, there's so much, uh, I don't know, negativity in the Bible against sorcery, uh, which, you know, we'll talk about in a little while, but uh, do you feel that it's kind of presenting a conflicting nature about, uh, about magic? I think we do have conflicted views about, about magic, and a lot of it has to do with our values. If, uh, if the power is used in one way, it's okay. If it's used in another way, it's not okay. Certainly any power that's used for negativity to bring about harm, for example, is, uh, is wrong. And magic is neutral. It can be used either for good or for bad. But when we get into nuances of uh, if you're doing something in the name of a certain deity or a certain uh, person, then it's okay. And and if you're the enemy of of that deity, then it's not okay. This is a subjective distinction. And, I mean, this goes as far back as probably uh, the beginning of man because there was always some element of, I don't want to say those who are more spiritually in tune or or connected, but they would always seem to have uh, a higher power to them than the common folk. Uh, so all these shaman, these healers that go back into these ancient tribes are all really just some form of magician u- utilizing that force in a positive or negative man- manner. I mean, is that the way you would view it? Well, traditionally, magic has been the province of the priest or the shaman, someone who is uh, either born with a certain power or trained to acquire certain power and attunement of consciousness. But actually, it's a power that's available to everyone. I think magic deserves to be democratized. And there's a theory that ancient cave paintings do represent a form of magic. Would you agree with that, Rosemary? I certainly do. I think that ever since human beings have formed into societies and wondered about uh, their relationship to uh, to the earth and animals and higher powers, we've been aware of magic. We've been aware of the ability to make things happen if we do something in the right way. The cave paintings seem to indicate that human beings were aware of a relationship to higher power and that if you were properly attuned to those higher powers, whether that was nature or something else that human beings conceived, then certain things would happen uh, to fulfill your goals and and needs. I think we have a call on the line. If you have a question about magic uh, and you'd like to pose it to Rosemary or if you have a question for Keith Johnson, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Let's go to the phones here. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Oh. Hello. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Okay. My name is John. I'm calling from San Diego, California. Okay. I was try- trying to reach Tim Weinsberg. That is me. Uh, hello, Tim. How you doing? Um, I remember I talked to you a couple, what, a month ago? Oh, okay, yep. 
about that website. Yeah, and you spoke with Matt Moniz? I'm sorry, sir? You spoke with Matt Moniz afterward? Yeah, I did. Uh, I haven't heard anything back from you guys, so I thought I'd make some little uh, contact with you guys. I know that and, uh, I know that Matt was uh, in the process of trying to do a little digging on what you were talking about. Yeah, I hope he reached that website because I've been trying to uh, give this information out to all the investigators, and um, I recently talked to Bill Burns. Okay, you know, and uh, many other people. I've just been on radio, also uh, Eddie Middleton. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt with uh, the oh, discussion no, no, that, you have tonight. That's fine. Uh, if you want to. Um I don't know. Why don't, why don't I have uh, Matt Moniz get back in touch with you, and we can try to set aside a time when you can come on and talk about it. That'd be great. Okay. That'd be fantastic. Uh, do you have my number? Yeah, he does. He's, he's got it oh, he uh, saved in his yeah. cell phone, I believe. So. Well, there's some developing news, and I'd like to talk to him. Hopefully, he could give me a call either tomorrow morning or whatever when he can. Okay. I know he's in New York this weekend uh, with Bud Hopkins, so hopefully. Oh, Bud, yeah, I, I've been trying to reach Bud, too, you know. Okay. I don't know what's going on. We'll see, uh, we'll see if Matt can hook that up for you. Great. Thank you very much, sir. Right, I do thanks. appreciate this. Thank you, John. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That is uh, a caller who called in after the show uh, about a month or so ago, and he has a developing situation uh, regarding UFOs that he was talking with Matt Moniz about, and I know that Matt was trying to do a little bit more digging uh, on the subject. So once we get more information, we get more stuff together, we'll present it to the spooky South Coast audience. So Sorry to, uh, to interrupt the discussion, Rosemary, but... Actually, we could use a good UFO case these days. <laughs> I, well, we're getting one in Chicago, it seems, uh, with uh, with the sightings over O'Hare Airport. Yeah, those are pretty interesting. And uh, I heard uh, Linda Moulton Howe on a radio show last night talking about some of the new uh, information that has come to light. So if you check out her website, earthfiles.com, you can find out more information there. And we're going we're gonna to have Linda on sometime in the future, so we can uh, get into that case more. And, and, and so, Rosemary, I mean, it's... It's just uh, the way that this show works, because uh, we don't have the live streaming, sometimes people just call in with random questions. So. That's Ho- fine. Hopefully it doesn't interrupt uh, the flow of the conversation too much. I'm sure Keith and I can feel just about anything. That's oh, true. Yeah. We, we, between us, I think we can. <laughs> and uh, But getting back into the subject of magic, uh, I said at the top of the show from reading in your book, you know, there's, there's no such thing really as good or bad magic. It's how it's used. Exactly. And over the years, uh, it seems like the... Good magic that's been done has been given other terms, uh, other ways of making it sound more rosy than calling it magic, whereas the darker side uh, has been referred to as black magic or even witchcraft. Uh, And is that coming down, you think, from the different religion groups uh, and how they're categorizing it to their followers? I think that because magic places power in the hands of an individual, it's in the interests of an institution such as a religion to keep that power uh, as limited as possible. Exactly. Other, otherwise, uh, people have no need for the institution. And that's unfortunately, that goes to, at least in my opinion, uh, more than just views on magic. That goes to pretty much top to bottom, everything involved in, in a set of religious beliefs. Exactly. And uh, we've, uh, we've opened that door a few times here where we've uh, called out uh, different or, uh, religious organizations for some of their practices and it, it opens up a groundswell so we just want to state that we are not in any way uh, putting down any religion we're just saying that as with anything you know uh, anything in power wants to remain in power so that being said uh, let's we'll move away from that a little bit 
Now, and some of these magic uh, magic philosophies uh, differ greatly from region to region in the in the uh, older times and the more ancient times. Uh, but there was different forms of magic in places like Egypt, and then there was like the Greco-Roman magic. Uh, what are some of the major differences between how magic was observed in these early quote-unquote superpowers of the world? It has to do with the uh, perceptions of the higher powers, the pantheon of deities, of course, that uh, a culture relates to. One of the things I always appreciated about Roman magic is they were famous cursers. They cursed all the time, uh, and that's a form of magic, to place uh, a negative spell on anybody for anything, a business rival, a love rival, somebody who uh, looked at you uh, cross-eyed and made you feel bad. The Romans were famous for this. They would write down curses on, on tablets and, um, and pray very hard for these ill wishes against someone else to come to pass. And it seems like uh, the, the Greco-Roman beliefs uh, in the multiple gods, uh, they don't believe in the, the monotheistic uh, that we observe today, but they would have these multiple gods that would be responsible for different aspects of daily life. And how much uh, intertwined with that was magic with, with these gods? How much of it was associated to these individual gods? Well, for example, if you wanted to do something magical, you would petition the appropriate deity for that, mm-hmm. um, whoever would be in charge of good luck or fertility or domestic happiness, love, personal power and strength. So a spell uh, or a ritual would be oriented around um, asking for the favors of a particular deity. And by doing that, it kind of... Uh, I don't want to say devalues the power, but instead of having one all-powerful being and using magic as a way of kind of uh, making yourself equal to that being uh, and trying to usurp the power of that being, by using it with individual deities, it's using it alongside the deity, if you you follow what I mean. Uh, Instead of uh, too much of the view of magic in a a, one-god society is that somebody's trying to equal or rival the power of God, but in that type of format, it was easier to work with the gods, and it wasn't seen so blasphemous. Well, that uh, that's one view that magic um, has the potential to usurp the power of God, that it replaces your relationship with uh, the one power, the one presence. Uh, but in the pantheon of deities, um, they're just aspects of, of Godhead, I consider mm-hmm. them to be all pieces of of the one anyway. And that, I mean, I'm, I personally wish that there was more uh, observance of that type of, a little bit more credence lent to that type of observance because it was key in forming the religious beliefs that we have today. And uh, too, more often, it's it's relegated to fable and fairy tale in a classroom these days. But that's that's a shame. But the in the Egyptian uh, point of view of magic too, I mean, they are really took it to the extreme. It was very important in their daily life and in their afterlife as well. Especially the afterlife. The Egyptians placed a great deal of importance on what happens to us after death, how we navigate uh, through the the underworld to reach safety. There were, were many magical texts and many magical spells devoted to this. A great deal of attention of the living was absorbed uh, among certain classes, at least, in how 
how to die properly and and how to reach the afterlife safely. And also, one of the uh, in your book here mentions too one of the uh, important aspects of the magician's work in ancient Egypt was exorcisms as well. Exorcisms exist everywhere, and I think uh, every culture has had some ritual or procedure for expelling troublesome uh, entities out of daily life. We have um, a great variety of views about how spirit beings can interfere. In many cultures, almost anything that negative uh, Almost anything that is negative can be blamed on an interfering entity. And uh, an exorcism is not quite the, the um, serious matter that it is in Christianity. And by that I mean it's not the all-out battle for the soul. It's just getting rid of a troublesome presence in your life. Um, but in Christianity, we've um, come to view demons as really after our souls, our, uh, our very core essence, and that if we fall victim to them in the most extreme fashion, that's what's at stake. And it seems like uh, a lot of these magical uh, philosophies that were born in those more ancient times continued to carry out uh, into later times uh, and post, post-Jesus time as well. Uh, I mean, that's when you started to really see the performance of the quote-unquote miracle and where it was magic performed through God, which makes it, you know, divine. And we move into the aspect of Jewish magic, too, as well, uh, going on at the same time, where it was a little bit more mystical and not really as out in the open. Is that is that correct? Well, there were certainly mystical traditions devoted to uh, accessing various hierarchies of beings, both angels and uh, demons, in the uh, in the ancient world, both spirits were in you know great abundance, and you could you could have access to either one. In fact, many of the old magical grimoires, the old handbooks, uh, call for rituals to summon uh, what are called demons to help you effect a spell. And these entities can have helpful qualities and negative qualities. And it seems like uh, as magic, uh, as I don't know if, if it's more the uh, modern man as we've forwarded in our thinking and forwarded in our beliefs or if it's more the religious oppression of the streamlining of religion as we go along, but magic does fade more into the background as the years go by. At, at what point did it become less part of people's daily lives? Because I think during medieval times, at least what we've learned through popular culture, uh, magic was pretty prominent during that day as well. It was indeed, and of course during the Inquisition there was a great deal of attention focused on the lowest forms of magic, that is sorcery, uh, witchcraft that would be used for negative purposes, the interference of uh, demons as part of the battle for the soul, the infestation of demons. After the Renaissance, magic began to um, fade away and become more trivialized, and now it's unfortunately part of our entertainment culture. Mm-hmm. But would you say during those medieval times, I mean, was magic probably, I don't want to say at its peak of acceptance, would you say? 
I think that magic was very much alive in daily culture. For example, the average person would go see a village um, magician, a wise woman, a sorcerer, a cunning man. They had many names when they wanted uh, blessings, when they wanted their crops to come in good, when they wanted their animals to be healthy, when they wanted to have good health. In fact, in, in some areas, it would be an annual tradition to go and visit the local wizard uh, or the local witch to get some sort of blessing for the year. So uh, people were very much engaged in um, spell casting and um, that sort of magic in the Middle Ages. I mean, it seems like the stuff of fairy tale and fiction, but, you know, these royal courts uh, that existed then when they were the various uh, crown heads of Europe, they did have, you know, magicians as part of their court. They did rely heavily on somebody influencing some sort of force in their life. I've heard that uh, the personage of Merlin the Magician may have represented an actual alchemist or somebody who really lived. Uh, what do you, What can you tell me about that, Rosemary? I think that Merlin did have some basis in historical fact, but um, it's really buried. Uh, no one really knows exactly who he might have been. I think that over the time, over time, the legends have been combined about a number of people to, you know, make up the one person known as Merlin. It's usually that is. Uh... You know, when you have the composite of something like that and you're building a legend, it's hard to believe that it could be based in fact. But, I mean, if some of the stories are true, I mean, uh, just doing some research online, it talked about certain kings and certain uh, crown heads that would each have this one trusted advisor that supposedly had the power of magic. Uh, and if you're going to put all your faith in somebody, you would want it to be somebody with that type of abilities. Yes, this would be someone who would be attuned to the higher powers, who would have uh, psychic ability, the ability to prophesy, the ability to interpret dreams, to read signs in nature. These are psychic skills, and that's part of magic, too. I don't like to generalize, but it seems like during the medieval times when uh, the church was still, and I say church meaning the, the Roman Catholic Church, was still in the beginnings of extending its power uh, throughout the world, there was a, a brief period of time where people could look uh, at the world around them and still hold on to some of those pagan beliefs of, you know, worshipping the earth and the things that are happening. Uh, and is that really where, when these magicians draw their power, is that what the allure was? Uh, because there was no pervading religion yet overtaking the world? I, I think that magic offers us a unique way to relate to the natural world, and unfortunately this is one of the things that's gotten submerged into the background mm -hmm. of monotheistic religion. We, we've lost a lot of our uh, attunement to the forces of nature, for example, which are very important in magic overall. Uh, we've sort of put all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak. And I, I apologize for some of the convolutedness of my questions. I'm trying to dance my way around the religion issue as I'm asking them. <laughs> it's uh, un unfortunately you can't get around it very well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's it, bound up in the whole question of magic. I, I generally I generally don't when I when I address the subject here on the show because you know no matter what we're talking about in terms of the paranormal, uh, different religion and religious beliefs come up. And generally, I try not to dance around them, but for some reason, magic is something that really draws the ire of those who are firmly against it. 
Well, it does. And, in fact, take, for example, prayer. Uh, the idea that prayer would be called a form of magic is automatically going to make a lot of people very angry. Oh, there's people already writing letters, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to it. <laughs> Uh, but when you look at the principles of prayer and the way we pray, uh, it's very hard not to call it a form of magic. And, and that doesn't mean that it's um, negative or that it detracts from God or our relationship with God. It's a way of relating to the, that power and, and to bring that power through us and into the physical world. What we're going to do is we're going to take our last break of the hour. And then uh, when we come back, I'd like to get a little bit into one of the most uh, uh, one of the most polar figures in the world of magic, and that would be Aleister Crowley. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about him and some of his involvement and part of what what he did and, and what he I don't want to say did to dispel magic because that's kind of a it sounds like a bad pun, but you know some of uh, the negative negativity that was attached to his beliefs and how that kind of hurt magic's reputation over the years. And then uh, we'll take a break for the news. Uh, we'll do the week and weird in the second hour. And then we can talk a bit about modern magic as well, if that, that sounds good to you, Rosemary. Sure does. All right. So we'll be right back in about two minutes here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast is back. We're going to reach out and grab you because we are Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, silent assassin Matt Costa whipping up his magic, and Keith Johnson along as our special guest host. And we are talking to Rosemary Ellen Guiley about magic and alchemy. And uh, we'll actually get into alchemy a little bit too as well because we haven't really talked about that particular subject matter. Uh, but one of the figures that I wanted to talk about is probably oh, somebody who is... Uh, both vilified and glorified in the world of magic, and that would be Alistair Crowley. Uh, Rosemary, what's your opinion of, of Alistair Crowley and uh, his time on this earth? Oh, sorry. Hold on one second. He was quite talented and quite a brilliant magician. He had an oversized ego and an oversized personality way over the top, uh, and a lot of the attention for his outrageous behavior unfortunately tarnished the real magical ability and brilliance that he had. Because unfortunately he used magic as um, an avenue to satisfy some of his desires, uh, which at the time were not really quite accepted. Uh, he, he was a uh, bisexual, and uh, he was, let's just say, uh, how can we put this on set? He's a little freaky. <laughs> well, he certainly was, and he indulged in a lot of scandalous behavior and practices with uh, prostitutes and experimenting with drugs, with um, self-inflicted physical abuse, verbal abuse of other people. Uh, he made a big discovery about the importance of uh, sex and magic, however, and sex actually is an undercurrent through everything in the paranormal, spiritual, and mystical it's part of the power. Sexual energy can be used in magic uh, to increase the, the power of the magic. All right, now we're getting into the good stuff here. <laughs> and uh, sorry, I always have to go for the lame joke. That's that's my job. Here. <laughs> but um, it, it is. But it was one of the the key 
points that people bring up when talking about him is it's either used as a way, like you said, to credit what he did by bringing it into magic or to discredit him as he was just some weirdo in using, you know, magic because he knew those people would be more accepting of that, uh, that lifestyle as well. But he, at the time, he really did revamp magic not just with the sexual aspect of it as well, but just in a lot of his theories, uh, he viewed it with a completely different point of view than had been previously accepted. The, the highest form of magic is the spiritual path. It's a path of enlightenment and coming to know yourself and also expanding your consciousness into the higher planes uh, to attune to whatever you call the Godhead. Crowley was very interested in that, and a lot of his magic was oriented to that. And uh, he had one basic law that he followed uh, that he that he essentially put out there, and um, that was uh, from, I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly, but the law of uh, Thelema? Uh, Thelema. Thelema. Which Do what is, thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And that was a, a bit of a different approach to what uh, people in the magic community were used to. Well, it, it sounds very selfish to some people. It, it sounds like it's um, self-indulgent, but actually what it means is um, that you, you do what you must. In other words, if you follow the path of enlightenment, you are constantly called to the highest path. So you do what you must according to that calling. Because I, when I was reading over uh, the material in the encyclopedia uh, and I read about that, I said, well, gee, you know, that seems like somebody who is using magic for the to for their own self-serving purposes but when you realize what he was talking about and what he did to apply that to his life then you realize it is a more enlightened way of thinking yes it is and it was very revolutionary for the time too but unfortunately uh, his life took a, a a downturn rather quickly uh he was involved with uh, some magical organizations uh of course now, the, why don't you talk a little bit about his involvement with the biggest magical organization? The OTO? Yes. Well, the uh, the OTO, uh, oh, one of his most interesting relationships was with Jack Parsons. And um, Jack Parsons was a very interesting character, a rocket scientist who uh, died in, in a laboratory explosion in his garage, um, thought is that he may have been experimenting with some of uh, Crowley's magic to uh, actually make a, um, a female entity in the flesh. Now that's, uh, that's definitely bringing sex into magic, I think, a little bit. And, uh, and Crowley himself uh, died under some terrible circumstances as well. I mean, he basically just spiraled down uh, through drug use. Is that, is that accurate or is that just the way it's been portrayed? Uh, it is. He was pretty dissipated uh, by the time he died. He was very weak. Uh, his powers had left him a, kind of a sad figure at the end. But, but he was more than just uh, what he accomplished uh, in the world of magic as well. He was a, a very well-respected and renowned author as well. Well, his magical works are still in print today, and actually they're kind of hard-going, some of them. Um, kind of have to wade through a lot of um, convoluted language, but the essence of them is still very important. And, of course, the uh, tarot deck he designed is still very much in use today. Is that correct? 
It is Keith, and people either love it or they don't like it at all. It just polarizes people. There's a very strange energy to it. Um, I'm very familiar with the tarot because I've used the tarot for many years, and and I've done three um, works on the tarot myself. It's for many people, it's a very uncomfortable deck, but the images in it are very evocative. They activate consciousness in a very profound way. And unfortunately, uh, in modern times, uh, Aleister Crowley's been lumped in with a lot of Satanists. Uh, you hear about him being along the same lines of, you know, the Church of Satan and uh, and some of those figures. But he wasn't a Satanist. He was just, you know, in he, magic was his religion. And he was not a Satanist, even though uh, he's, you know, known as the Great Beast. But he truly thought that he was going to usher in a new religion, a new eon. That's what his magic was oriented toward, and it never really caught hold as such. Well, I think uh, Anton Zandolovay modeled his persona, his outward persona, after Crowley to a certain extent with the shaven head and everything. She did in uh, April of 1966 and, uh, you know, really fed into that uh, satanic appearance like that. But th- there is a uh, claim by Crowley that he was visited by some kind of demonic being that resembled a small gray. Isn't that true that uh, he was visited by this being that uh, really seemed to be the typical alien type of creature? I think that he was in contact with entities that we would call aliens. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, whether or not he actually considered them to be an alien in an extraterrestrial sense, uh, I'm not certain that he did because it's, it's not clear in, in his works, but uh, the, the kind of entities that he was in contact with would certainly fit into those categories. There's also a rumor that Crowley had an affair with H.P. Lovecraft's wife, but uh, that's simply because Sonia Half-Green, years before she was married to Howard Lovecraft, attended a writer's conference in New York where Aleister Crowley was one of the key speakers, and there's no evidence that they even met, let alone had a love affair. So that's, that's where that rumor came from. Well, he certainly had love affairs with just about everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was quite a character. And, and how much did magic uh, benefit or suffer after his passing? I know you said that his views never really caught hold, but what was his... Uh, not so much as passing because he was kind of out of the, the major loop before that, but what kind of uh, impact did he leave on magic uh, in, in his wake? I think he's continued to have a major impact on how people, how people who practice magic view magic. Uh, as, as I mentioned, he, his new eon never really caught on with the general public, but in the magical community, his uh, influence is still felt today, uh, and I think that um, he deserves serious study and some uh, to be looked at in a more serious light. Well, one lasting impact that he's had uh, is in the world of rock and roll, uh, from Jimmy Page to Ozzy Osbourne, uh, some of these uh, heavy metal artists of the late 70s, uh, early 80s, uh, during that time when when English heavy metal was uh, predominant in music, uh, he had a profound impact. I mean, Aleister Crowley is considered 
I don't know, the, the father of a lot of what Led Zeppelin was doing because Jimmy Page said he was channeling him living in his, uh, in his house in London. Uh, so what we're going to do is actually we're going to play out uh, into the news the Ozzy Osbourne song, Mr. Crowley, because we figured they never really get to play enough Ozzy on WBSM being a talk radio station. So we're going to play that for you as we head into the CBS News. On the other side, we will have the Week and Weird. We will talk a little bit about a new cable access program coming to New Bedford uh, that follows right along the subject matter of what we're talking about uh, here on Spooky South Coast each week. And then on the other side, uh, like I said, we'll have the Week and Weird. I have a story here from the New York Times, Rosemary, about magic that ran this week. I don't know if you saw this, but it seems like every time you're with us, the New York Times runs a story uh, related to what we'll be talking about. It happened last time with dreams. So we'll synchronicity. <laughs> exactly. That's a very interesting synchronicity. We'll uh, we'll talk about that, and then uh, we'll also talk more about modern magic, uh, as well as the art of alchemy. And we'll check in with Matt Moniz a little bit later on. But uh, for right now, we will play you out to the tunes of Mister Crowley by Ozzy Osbourne, and then we'll see you back here in a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. South Coast is burned. I see you shiver with anticipation. Well, we're waiting. Patience. I can smell your fears. I'm not afraid. You will be. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast on an action-packed night. Just a couple programming notes coming up here. 
in case we fail to mention it by the end of the show. Next week, we will have a guest joining us, uh, Dr. Lewis Turry. You've heard him on other programs, uh, including that, that big one that we don't carry on WBSM, so I can't say coast to coast. <coughs> uh, you've heard him on that many times, uh, and he is uh, one of the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, they call themselves, uh, along with Gary Busey and a couple other guys who I can't think of right now. But uh, Dr. Tory will join us next week to give us some 2007 predictions. Uh, and, of course, it just so happens it works out this way each year so far here on Spooky South Coast because, you know, we are, in, we are entering year number two. Tomorrow does mark the one-year anniversary of Spooky South Coast. And uh, last year, right before the Super Bowl, we had uh, Gail Hicks, a local uh, medium out of Fall River. Uh, she gave us her prediction for the Super Bowl. didn't quite really work out, but it was a hard one to pin down. But uh, while we have Dr. Turry on, we're going to try to get him to give us a prediction as well. Uh, I, uh, I asked him about it. I sent him an email asking him if he'd be willing to do it, and I haven't heard back yet. So I think he's uh, waiting to see exactly what goes on during the week before he can say whether or not he can pinpoint that one or not, but we'll see if we can do it. Then after that, February 10th, we will have our annual, what is now becoming our annual, Bridgewater Triangle Show, where we devote the entire program to the mysterious uh, area of Massachusetts known as the Bridgewater Triangle. The plan is to have Christopher Balzano of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, uh, Derek Bartlett from the Cape and Islands Paranormal Research Society, and Aaron Kaju, who made the film Inside the Bridgewater Triangle, which some of you may have seen last night at the Capers Open Meeting. We're going to try to have them in the studio, hopefully with Chris Pittman, who is the uh, Triangle historian. And we're going to see if we can get all of them to form one big panel here in the studio to talk about the developments in Triangle research over the last year. And at the same time, we're going to try to put some people out in the field at various locations around the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, much like we did with the Haunted Tour of Route 44 episode, to see if they can actually experience anything while they're out there. And uh, we'll talk about some of the history of some of these places uh, as well. So we're talking about the ledge out in the Freetown State Forest, uh, Profile Rock, the Hockamock Swamp in the Taunton area, all these different locations. We'll see if we can get investigators out there to check them out and uh, see what happens. And then we're working on a few other things for after that. We'll have more information. Stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com where we'll post updates as they become available. And speaking of a different kind of programming note, we have a guest joining us on the line right now. Uh, it is the one and only the witch Penny Dreadful from Penny Dreadful Shilling Shockers, and she's joining to talk to us about a new program airing after her show here on Channel 95 in New Bedford. How are you doing tonight, Penny? Oh, I'm doing just awful, thank you. And that, that's good for you, right? <laughs> well, of course you uh, do. How are you fellas doing? We're spooktacular. Oh, that's wonderful. You're, I'm speaking to you right now via Seance. Oh, good. It's wonderful yeah. hearing your disembodied voice there, Tim. It works a lot better than when you try to talk to us through a Ouija board, because then, you know, we have to sit here and spell stuff out, and it takes too long. It does, it does. You're right. So, and, we, and we have Keith Johnson with us tonight in place of Matt Moniz. Hello, oh. Penny. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too, Keith. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I never expected to get Keith through here on seances. This is marvelous. Well, we're using a lot of horse seance tonight, so... Oh, I see. He's, he's busy uh, running around undoing all the things that you've done. Oh, uh, I knew it was somebody. So, I, I knew it was somebody. Well, that's all right, you know. And uh, so there's a new program uh, coming on after Shilling Shockers Friday nights here in New Bedford. Uh, what's that all about? That's right. Uh, we are presenting uh, horror hosts from all over the United States. Uh, through the Horror Host Underground, and uh, you get to watch uh, after Shilling Shockers at midnight, the witching hour. <laughs> you get to watch all kinds of uh, wonderful, wacky antics of horror hosts doing what they do, and that's hosting horror films, classic horror films, on television in New Bedford, Massachusetts. 
And these are all uh, public domain films, uh, such as you were on Chilling Shockers? That's right. They're all uh, all in the public domain, the, the vast realm of public domain. Uh, and and so the, the good thing about it is is making more and more of these films available to the local viewing public. That's right. There's, there's lots of films out there, such as uh, Night of the Living Dead, for example, which uh, you know brought lots of lots of uh, classic horror films that are that have fallen into the public domain, and uh, we're sort of keeping this tradition alive, showing uh, horror films and hosting them. And uh, there are horror hosts all over the country still uh, doing this and trying to keep this tradition going. This week we debuted the horror host Underground uh, spe- weekly special, and this week it was the Zombie Cheerleader out of Washington D.C. who does a fantastic show. And uh, who do you have coming up uh, on this week's? This week we have, out of Nashville, Tennessee, Dr. Gangreen, who's a mad scientist who's uh, on Shackle Island broadcasting all kinds of terrifying uh, treats for, for the kiddies and, and the, the kiddies at heart. I think he's worked with Moniz in the past. It's, it's very possible. I can, I I can see them working together. I think they'd be a good match. <laughs> And so, uh, and who, and some of these other hosts that are coming up uh, from all over the country, uh, do you think that that brings a different flavor of horror? I mean, around here, you know, you know, you grew up in Salem, you know what it's like around here, and and how we view horror here. Uh, do you think there's going to be you know different elements of camp from some people and and uh, more spooky stuff from other hosts? Well, absolutely. Everyone has a has a sort of a different style, you know. And some of the hosts are more of the wacky sort of non horror character style. They do sort of a sort of a fun comedian sort of deal, and uh, others have a, like Professor Griffin from Texas does sort of a showman where he's he's uh, showing you uh, these these different films and uh, and acting like he's a sort of a sideshow guy. He's a he's a great one, and we have all ki- all kinds of different different horror hosts who have put their brand on on it. Some uh, do their mystery science theater style, and they talk uh, cut into the movie and talk during the movie. Uh, have captions underneath. Everyone has a different. In on it, some people make fun of the movies. Some people uh, revere the movies. It's a, it's a, all kinds of different styles. And the, the residents of New Deptford will will get a, a look at that. And then we have, of course, uh, season three of Shilling Shockers coming up uh, in about a month. We're going to be starting that off. And uh, of course, you guys are, are on there in, uh, in one of those episodes where you were kind enough to grace us with your ethereal presence and in doing an, uh, an interview with us. And that that'll be airing uh, next month. Oh, it was a pleasure. It's probably not what you want to hear, but we had a great time. Oh well, you know, well it was it was wonderful having you there. It was very delightful. And uh, and we'll we'll gladly come back any time because uh, the nightmares have faded from our last visit. So oh well, we'll have to give you new ones there. Well, right, that, that would be very exciting, I think. Right, Penny, so. when are you going to have me on? Oh well, well, if I'm honored that you'd want to be on. So oh, I'd love to. I'd simply you. love to. We will definitely have to have to make arrangements to have you visit my little attic of terror. I always say, you kill the brain, you kill the ghoul. That, that, that's right. <laughs> but you ought to be true to your ghoul and watch uh, Shilling Shockers every week, right? Very true. Every Friday night at 10 o'clock uh, on Channel 95 in New Bedford, followed by the Horror Host Underground show, okay. and uh, also airing uh, in the Marion Mattapoisett area and Wareham as well. Yes. And how about going the other way, Fall River and... Fall River, we're, we're airing right now in about 55 cities and towns throughout New England. We're that's, spreading like the plague. That's outstanding. All right, well, thank you for joining us, and uh, hopefully the new show works out just as well as Shilling Shockers yes, has. I think, it's, I think folks will like it. Definitely check it out. Midnight on, on Friday is the Horror Host Underground. And more information on shillingshockers.com and horrorhost.com as well. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, thanks. Have a terrible night, Penny. Yes, thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, now, uh, now that we've told you about the... 
Horror Host Underground show. Make sure you check that out, and we'll see if we can spread that into all these other areas as well as New Bedford. And now let's do a little something we call The Week in Weird. And I alluded to it during the, uh, while we were getting ready for the second hour. From the New York Times, Do You Believe in Magic? by Benedict Carey. Psychologists and anthropologists have typically turned to faith healers, tribal cultures, or New Age spiritualists to study the underpinnings of belief in superstition or magical powers. Yet they could just as well have examined their own neighbors, lab assistants, or even some fellow scientists. New research demonstrates that habits of so-called magical thinking, the belief, for instance, that wishing harm on a loathed colleague or relative might make him sick, are far more common than people acknowledge. These habits have little to do with religious faith, which is much more complex, but magical thinking underlies a vast, often unseen universe of small rituals that accompany people through every waking hour of a day. The appetite for such beliefs appear to be rooted in the circuitry of the brain, and for good reason. The sense of having special powers buoys people in threatening situations and helps soothe everyday fears and ward off mental distress. In excess, it can lead to compulsive or delusional behavior. The emerging portrait of magical thinking helps explain why people who fashion themselves skeptics cling to odd rituals that seem to make no sense, and how apparently harmless superstition may become disabling. The brain seems to have networks that are specialized to produce an explicit magical explanation in some circumstances, said Pascal Boyer, a professor of psychology and anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, children exhibit a form of magical thinking by about 18 months when they begin to create imaginary worlds while playing. By age three, most know the difference between fantasy and reality, though they usually still believe with adult encouragement in such things as Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Why wouldn't they believe in that? Aren't they? All right, never mind. By age eight and sometimes earlier, they have mostly pruned away these beliefs, and the line between magic and reality is about as clear to them as it is to results. It is no coincidence some social scientists believe that youngsters begin learning about faith around the time they begin to give up on wishing. And that, of course, is something that we were talking about a little bit earlier. So there were some experiments done uh, at various colleges uh, last summer. Psychologists at Princeton and Harvard showed how easy it was to elicit magical thinking in well-educated young adults. They had participants watch a blindfolded person play an arcade basketball game and visualize success for the player. The game, unknown to the subjects, was rigged. The shooter could see through the blindfold, had practiced, practiced extensively, and made most of the shots. On questionnaires, they said later they probably had some role in the shooter's success. A comparison group of participants who had been instructed to visualize the player lifting dumbbells was far less likely to claim such credit. In another experiment, the researcher demonstrated that young men and women instructed on how to use a voodoo doll suspected that they might have put a curse on a study partner who feigned a headache. And they found similarly that devoted fans who watched the 2005 Super Bowl felt somewhat responsible for the outcome, whether their team won or lost. Millions in Chicago and Indianapolis are currently trying to channel the winning magic. So there you go, just a little bit of a touch upon. I mean, this, this article is very in-depth, and if you go to the New York Times website, you can still find it there. But uh, it really does talk about a lot of the modern beliefs in magic, which is something we're going to get to in just a few minutes. But uh, next up, we will throw it to Keith, who has an interesting story for us. He mentioned brains earlier, so let's oh, yes. talk a little bit more about them. From Fox News, Ancient Skull Has Both Neanderthal Modern Characteristics by Robert Ray Britt. A strange ancient skull recently uncovered adds to mounting evidence that humans and Neanderthals interbred and suggests that humans evolved considerably after settling the European continent some 40,000 years ago. Modern humans emerged from Africa about 150,000 years ago, according to the leading theory, which has been challenged in recent years. 
The newfound skull is thought to be from some time in the first 5,000 years of human habitation of Europe. The skull is unlike anything previously dug up. Researchers led by Heo Ziel of the University of Bristol in England and Eric Trinkhaus of Washington University in St. Louis compared the features of the cranium found in a cave in southwestern Romania with other human samples from the time. The reconstructed cranium, called Oasis, radio, radiocarbon dating revealed only that it is at least 35,000 years old. But its mandible is similar to Oasis, found previously at the surface of the cave and dated more firmly to about 40,500 years ago. The team has concluded that both fossils are the same age. These are the earliest modern human remains so far found in Europe. Hoysi has the same proportions as modern human craniums and has other features that are non-Neanderthal. But other features are unusual for a modern human, the scientists say. These include a retreating forehead and exceptionally large upper molars, characteristics found principally among the Neanderthals. Technically, this skull is a modern human. But humans as we know them today have evolved considerably since then, Trinkhaus said. Such differences raise important questions about the evolutionary history of modern humans, Sahel said. They could be the result of evolutionary reversal or reflect incomplete paleontological sampling of middle paleolithic human diversity. They could also reflect a mixture with Neanderthal populations as modern humans spread through western Eurasia. This mixture would have resulted in both archaic traits retained from the Neanderthals and unique combinations of traits resulting from the blending of previously divergent gene pools. Trinkhaus announced similar evidence of human Neanderthal intermingling in October. Some researchers have questioned whether humans and Neanderthals ever met, however. More bones must be found to fill in the time gaps and settle the question, the researchers said. This fossil is a major addition to the growing body of fossil, genetic, and archaeological evidence, indicating significant levels of biological and cultural interaction between modern humans and the automatically archaic populations, including Neanderthals. They met along the way as they spread from Africa to Eurasia, Zielo said. The findings are detailed this week in the proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists. Of course, we already have proof that humans and Neanderthals interbred. I believe it. It's called the cast of Spooky South Coast. <laughs> Present company excluded, Keith. Oh, thank you. But the guy that usually sits in that chair is probably example number one. I'm a Neanderthal man. We can, we, we can say that because uh, he is in New York and can't hear us right now. So we can say that. When he listens to the show later on in the week, I'll probably get an angry phone call. But... Uh, Totally uh, on a totally different level. Make sure you check out the song "Troglodyte" by the Jimmy Castor Bunch. That gives a little bit more of the intermingling between uh, cavemen and, and modern men too. So I was doing hot legs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We uh, we recently discovered the the wonderful joys of the Jimmy Castor Bunch. So, Macos, what do you have for us? Something weird, I hope. Sure. No. All right. Don't read your grocery list. What do you got? <laughs> well, I was gonna make a big Bertha butt. Comment, but okay, never mind. She's one of the butt sisters. She is okay. my favorite butt sister. Anyway, Amazon.com founder Jeff Bezos has released more information about his super secret tourism venture, codenamed the Blue Origin, 
Bezos founded the Blue Origin in 2000 with the aim of developing a new type of vertical takeoff, vertical landing rocket ship capable of taking passengers to the edge of space. At altitudes in excess of 62 miles, customers could be able to scan the Earth's curving expanse beneath a black sky, experience a few minutes of weightlessness, and brag that they are they have been in, uh, they have at least been out to outer space. A video of the craft named Goodard after the rocket pioneer Robert Goodard can be seen rising from a circular pad of concrete to a height of about 285 feet, then coming back down to a soft landing. Nine thrusters on the craft's underbelly are powered by a peroxide kerosene propulsion system. The Blue Origin's current development schedule calls for commercial trips to start in 2010, and Stephen Hawking. The renowned physicist has said he will be the first in line for the Blue Origin space venture. You can find these updated photos and videos on blueorigin.com, and a link will be posted on Spooky South Coast under the Week and Weird section. All right. Now, uh, considering how much uh, play we give Amazon.com all the time, whenever we have a guest on that has a book to promote, and we always mention you can get it on Amazon.com, the fine marketplace for anything that you're looking for. Uh, especially things in the paranormal realm, any books or DVDs you're looking for, go to Amazon.com, Amazon.com. I can't plug Amazon.com enough, so that maybe they'll give us some free seats on one of those space flights. What do you think, no? Hopefully. Get Jeff on the phone, see what we can pull off. All right, that is the huh. Week and Weird. Sorry, you going to say? Or? I was going to say, I'm sure Moniz knows Stephen Hawking, at least. He does. He probably does. You can get him on the phone. They didn't say in the story whether it's handicap accessible. Uh, yeah, oh, I was gonna, that uh, was... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I, I made a conscious decision not to go there, and you did it anyway. All right, so that is the Week in Weird. If you have uh, anything you'd like to submit for the Week in Weird, go to SpookySouthCoast.com, put it on the message board, and if we're still on the air next week after that comment by Matt Costa, we will, uh, we will read it on the air and give you full credit. So we'll be right back. More of the Magic Talk with Rosemary Ellen Guiley in just a minute. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Do you claim supernatural power? It seems the only thing you need to do to have magic is point. Perhaps I'll make you disappear. So different and so new, but like any other. Until I kissed you. I believe it's magic, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about magic and alchemy with our guest, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Rosemary, sorry, sorry to keep you waiting for so long there. We had some uh, important FCC fines to draw for ourselves there. That was all very interesting, and especially <laughs> that article from the New York Times on magic. It, it, re- it really is strange how uh, they always seem to sync up with your appearances here, but it, it was talking about the modern view of magic, and... Not discrediting it, but saying, you know, not really giving it much credence either, saying that it's an impulse in the brain to uh, use a magical explanation for things that we don't understand. I mean, you have to agree with that to some degree. Uh, A little bit. I think that there's a tendency among skeptics and some scientists to say that, well, because we have certain mechanisms in the brain, certain processes in the brain, uh, that dismisses everything supernatural. I think my view is that we have the hard wiring that enables us to perceive these things. We have the, the chemical uh, pathways in the brain built in so that we can 
um, make use of, of these abilities. So that's my view on it. Um, I think the other view is kind of a reductionist view that uh, unfortunately keeps us from um, paying attention. But there is, there is throughout history, there always has been a tendency to use uh, the magical and the mystical as an explanation for things that we don't understand. But and a lot of times, it's it's not it's not a cop out. It's not an excuse. It really is the reason. I, I think so. I think uh, that's the reason, or, or one of the reasons, why human beings have always had these thoughts, these inclinations, and these beliefs throughout history. The Frameworks may change the definitions, the specifics, but fundamentally, it's the same orientation. And now we talked a little bit at the beginning of the show about how magic is viewed today, and how uh, unfortunately it's it's been relegated to a form of entertainment, uh, and unfortunately more so, uh, it's been sent down into the comedy realm as the as as really good stage magicians have uh, evaporated a bit, and as the, some of the trickery involved has been exposed. Magic has kind of fallen out of the limelight, and it's kind of just you know the sideshow act now, uh, and that's a shame. I mean, guys like the amazing Jonathan, who is a, a wonderful comedian and magician, but it's viewed as a joke now. It's not viewed as a serious art. Well, here are some of the ways that we practice magic on a daily basis, and I did mention prayer earlier, that mm-hmm. prayer is a, a ritual of attunement for uh, achieving something in the physical world or uh, improving one's spiritual enlightenment as well. But um, if you set intentions for the day, you're practicing a very simple form of magic. That is, you're organizing your thoughts, your will, your concentration, your mental forces to accomplish something, to bring something into being. If you say affirmations or you write affirmations, you're practicing a very simple form of magic. Uh, if you work on developing your psychic ability, that's part of your magical power because that's an attunement to uh, the unseen realms, the higher powers. People do these things every day. Uh, if we send people good thoughts, that's uh, a very simple form of magic. If we think poorly of somebody... That's technically ill-wishing, which is a form of magic. And unfortunately, a lot of people pray in a negative way, and that's negative magic. It's just it's things like this that you wouldn't really put into the... You wouldn't think that would be considered magic, but it does tune into that, that other realm. We just haven't put magic in our daily vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And, and fortunately, as we said before, there is that negative connotation with a lot of it these days. Uh, how is it being observed uh, as much as it was before? Are there still these uh, magical sects, these magical orders that still look at it as part of their daily life as, as almost their religion? There are a lot of magical organizations today uh, that practice different paths of magic. As I mentioned earlier, magic, uh, one of the highest forms of magic is a spiritual path. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a pursuit of enlightenment, of um, self-purification, of attaining um, a higher state of consciousness that attunes to the divine, which could have many different labels and names. So um, you can practice it by yourself. There are many manuals out there, for example, for solitary magic. And then there are magical orders. And... and- Magic has uh, become 
as it becomes uh, involved in your da- in your daily life, as you said, on a way that you don't even realize it, it allows it to um, insert itself without that stereotype. I think that's very important. You know that New York Times article touched briefly on group power of um, magic. That is, uh, for example, when a lot of people watch the Super Bowl, uh, they feel that they've had an impact in which side wins. Well, group consciousness does have a power, and that's been recognized in mystical traditions since ancient times. Uh, There's been even scientific research on that, that uh, when you have a large group of people uh, holding a certain intention, which is a, a very simple form of magic, you can move power in a very significant way. So I think that um, a lot of times there is real magic involved in a sporting event, for example, which side wins. It, some of that may have to do not just with the skill of the players, but with the group consciousness formed of the people who are participating uh, well, that's by the, watching. That's the only way the Colts could have beaten the Patriots, so just through <laughs> magic. That's the only way they made it. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes my other job creeps into this one sometimes. So. <laughs> Little voodoo, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, but even so, like magic, uh, you know, in your in your book, uh, the Encyclopedia of Magic and Alchemy, you talk a bit about modern magic, and you mention uh, especially in quantum physics, there's the presence of magic, which is really uh, on the forefront of the scientific community now. Well, I think that we're finding science, religion, and the esoteric coming together in more significant ways, and. and at some point, we're going to have a common language that unifies all of these things. Instead of trying to approach them from different perspectives, what we run into there is um, by having one perspective, it sort of negates the others, and I think we need a unified language. And, of course, we experience that talking about the paranormal all the time. It's, it can either be an either-or, uh, and too much of it all blends together, and when there isn't an explanation, sometimes that is the explanation. I mean, not to sound uh, a little mystical myself here, but there is, when something doesn't fit that certain theory of what you're working in, it's easier to just discredit than it is to blend in these other ideas. That's right. And we're also beginning to understand that that everything is interconnected uh, and that we can have an impact on something through our thought as well, uh, that uh, we're not independent of other things that happen in uh, uh, existence, our thoughts have an impact, and how we think has an impact on everything. And do you also feel that in today's world climate, uh, in the geopolitical way that things are are shaking out, do you feel that there's an increase in the quote-unquote black magic of magic being used in a negative manner? Is this something that's kind of flying below the radar of a terrorist-dominated world? I certainly think that there are a lot of negative forces at play today. There's a lot of chaos. Mm -hmm. My personal feeling is that this has been on the rise for some time and that we had a major shift at 9-11, that the impact of that single terrorist act, even though we've had terrorism uh, and some pretty horrific terrorism prior to that, there was something about the way the world focused on that, uh, the reverberations of that that went around the planet, the shock waves, I think really ripped 
something in our dimension that enabled a lot of chaotic forces to enter into our world, anchor in, and begin to uh, have an impact. And, uh, Keith, I sure would love to hear your thoughts on this, too, because I think that we had um, a very dramatic turn for the worse with the ability of negativity to impact us. I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree that... Uh that the basic attitude of will we be here tomorrow, is everything going to be the same tomorrow, are we safe in our beds at night, it, it kind of brings me back to uh, when I was a small youngster and we were always afraid that there was going to be this uh, nuclear holocaust and we did the duck and cover exercise under our desks and everything like that. We had the fallout shelters and... Uh, just a general feeling of unrest, and I think we've kind of gone back to that where we're not just, we're not quite sure about our daily existence as we were. We're not taking things for granted, and there is a, a general feeling of unrest, and, and that's why people are searching for something concrete. And I also think that we feel more vulnerable, too. Oh, yes, And definitely. when we're vulnerable, we're um more open to the influences of negative forces. But I do think negative en- an increase in negative entities were able to anchor into our physical world and have a better ability to wreak havoc mm-hmm. by influencing people toward negative and evil acts. Well, I, I wonder how much of these negative uh, forces are being used uh, by these terrorists and by these uh, evildoers, as President Bush likes to call them, because here you have you know some of the world's most renowned and most practiced and trusted remote viewers uh, trying to locate Osama bin Laden or, or various uh, terrorists that the U.S. is in search of. And you have these massive you know, attempts at remote viewing and locating these people. And where it would work for so, in so many other areas, they're unable to find a guy like Osama bin Laden. You wonder if they're using some sort of magical force to help block that and deflect that. It's my personal opinion that uh, I think people do use magical forces for their their own ends and there's probably more of this going on below the radar than we might like to think and uh it seems like as the world you know goes through its its various cycles uh and magic is something that's going to go along with it you know when when people are in a more spiritual place uh, as a whole, it's going to be more accepted and more believed and eventually will become a little bit more colder and skeptical and not willing to accept it. And unfortunately, that's just the way it goes. It's, it's very cyclical, just like uh, most of the things we talk about here. That's right. And we've certainly seen that play out over and over again in history. Well, hopefully uh, we've shed some light on the subject of magic and and uh, made people more aware that it is around us all the time. And, Rosemary, we'd like to thank you uh, for joining us. We're going to check in with Matt down in New York. But before we do that, is there anything coming up on your calendar uh, at VisionaryLiving.com that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes, I'll be at the Stanley Hotel at the end of March on a haunted weekend. I'll be talking about shadow people. I've been collecting shadow people research for a couple of years now, and uh, I'm uh, putting together my data. I'll be publishing some of that this year. I'm quite excited about it. Uh, some very interesting stories about shadow people and uh, some that literally will make your hair stand on end. And uh, that's Dave uh, Dave Schrader's trip for Darkness Radio, right? That's it, right. And uh, is he still, does he still have some spots open for that? 
Um, I know it was filling up fast. He's very, if he's not sold out, he's very close to sold out. But he'll be doing some other events later on this year. And I have a number of appearances on my, you can go on my calendar page, visionaryliving.com, where I'll be speaking at conferences and events. Um, My two main topics this year are shadow people and also sex and the paranormal. Well, that's uh, that's one of my favorite subjects, but not not usually together. But <laughs> it's two things that are constantly on my mind. Uh, now, with all this research and, and discussion to shadow people, could we be seeing the Encyclopedia of Shadow People coming up? Well, I don't have enough for an encyclopedia. I was, was going to say, I'm wondering <laughs> if there's enough information out there to put, put one I together. I certainly have enough for a book. And the world is, needs a book on shadow people because there's so many alternative competing theories that if you can use your... Uh, ability to rope everything together and, and present it in your style. I think it'll help increase the visibility. Oh, by the way, Rosemary, I have a message. The Godfather says he's going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I know who that is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Johnny Z. I was visiting with him today, and uh, he said to say hello to you. Well, I'm uh, very pleased to work with John. He asked me to be his Maryland representative recently, and I'm quite excited about that. I, I said, what does this mean? I get demon calls in the middle of the night. Uh, so, the <laughs> so far, I haven't had any uh, demon calls in the middle of the night, but John is a wonderful guy. I uh, love his work, have a high uh, respect for him, so it's very exciting to actually uh, do some things with him. All right, well, we will all stay tuned to VisionaryLiving.com to keep up to date with everything that's going on and pick up the Encyclopedia of Magic and Alchemy available in bookstores now and on Amazon.com, Amazon.com, Amazon. We're not going to get those seats, so we probably shouldn't overplay it. (laughs) All right, Rosemary, we thank you for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you in the very near future. Thanks, Tim, and good night, Keith. Good night, Rosemary. Good night. Have a good one. And uh, we will have her back. We'll have to talk about shadow people because it oh, yeah. is just an outstanding phenomenon. We we touched a bit upon it with Heidi Hollis last year. Very controversial episode of Spooky South Coast. Oh, but yeah. uh, the subject matter is certainly open for more discussion. And uh, speaking of more discussion, we're going to have that when we come back from a commercial break. We'll check in with Matt Moniz down in New York. He's hanging out with Bud Hopkins and the Intruders Foundation uh, for a special event they had down there tonight. So stay tuned. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Well, the answer to that question is, actually the real question is, who's watching Matt Moniz? And that's everybody that is a fan of Ghosts Are Near, uh, Keith Johnson's show that he produces down in Rhode Island and airs on the Cox systems down there as well as on his website nearparanormal.com. And pretty soon they'll have your appearance on there, Matt Moniz. You are the, I guess you're the uh, the TV face of Spooky South Coast because uh, you're the one that looks the, actually, least normal. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I thought maybe you got mad and hung up on me. No, I'm still here. Yeah. Hanging out with Peter Robbins. Hey, oh, buddy. Tell him we say hello. Tim says hello, Pete. <laughs> and uh, so... It's probably uh, quite a, a contingent of uh, UFO researchers and, and uh, authors down there at Bud's uh, event. Was it yeah. a big crowd? I know you're expecting a lot of people. Was it a big crowd? Yeah, actually, it was actually a fairly sizable crowd. Uh, Anna Jameson gave uh, an excellent, excellent lecture about her particular case. Uh, both her and um, Beth uh, Collins 
were abductees that had been brought together numerous times and then became friends later on afterwards uh, in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, they recognized each other and stuff like that and uh, have been working, and they actually lived together and work a uh, horse farm out in Virginia. Um, it was an excellent lecture. Loads of people, lots of excellent, relevant questions. Uh, Bud always does well putting on these events. And was the uh, the general population uh, of the of the crowd was it believers? Uh, were there some skeptics in the crowd that were questioning what they were presenting? Uh, it was a, a fair balance of mm-hmm. uh, both skeptics, believer, and people that are just never really knew anything about the subject and were introduced to it for first time. That found it very, very enlightening. Now, just uh, briefly, if you could just go over exactly what happened to Anna Jamerson and Beth Collins and their experiences. Uh, they were abducted as children, introduced to each other, uh, regularly abducted throughout their lifetimes up into adulthood, uh, met in uh, 1987 for the first time outside of a UFO experience and uh, became very fast friends. Uh, and started working together and things of that nature, and now they run a, uh, a horse farm and uh, produce a productive business. But but you said earlier that they had been that they had met before, uh, and they met the first time not an abduction. So they had been introduced uh, during the course of their abductions, right? While they were in the uh, while they were while they were abducted, they had been introduced by the entities to each other and had no recollection right. of that. Uh, that's the only time that they had met prior to 1987 was with uh, alien through alien abduction. They met in what we call stark reality here mm-hmm. in 1987, but they had experiences with each other that predated that for many, many years. And when they there met, are n- sorry, there are a number of cases like that. That's one of these things that I was involved with Bud with for a number of years. Is cases like this. And there was no uh, recollection when they met in 1987 that they had met previously? Oh, well, I wouldn't say that. There was some recollection, but they couldn't figure out what it was. So kind of like one of those I-know-your-face type of situations? Right, 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 right. And and you say this is something that actually happens, uh, is rather common in abduction cases? They're starting to find out that it is far more common than they originally thought, yes. And, I mean, just... I mean, we're totally speculating here, but for what reason would the would these beings have to introduce people while they're being abducted? Uh, whatever the traits are that would help augment each other to produce a purpose, what that purpose is. To judge their interaction. Yeah, the, we'll still yet to determine. There are other cases where it's two females that help each other. Some cases it's two males. Sometimes it's a male and female. That In some cases, they wind up even getting married. Now, I was going to say, now, obviously, uh, Anna and Beth have had a successful relationship uh, in their time since meeting here in what you called stark reality, but is there also, in a lot of these incidents, uh, these people meet later on here on Earth and work together and succeed together? Yes. So, obviously, these beings are onto something when they are pairing these people When they pair up these people, either for mating or for a production of whatever they're looking to do, whatever their agenda is, and that's what is still trying to be determined. That's extremely interesting. It's something I hadn't really heard. Holy deja vu, huh? Oh, like I said, I've been working with this type of uh, phenomena for over 15 years now with Bud. And uh, when this does happen uh, and when these people are reintroduced and and reacquired, how often 
how does it come about that they have these recollections that they had met before while under abduction? Is it uh, through hypnosis? A lot of times or? It's just like I know you, I know you, and we're trying to figure out what, why, how, where, and, you know, that type of thing. But Matt, sometimes it's known by people. Sometimes it takes uh, hypnosis. But do these people have repressed memories that that actually prove to be factual later on when they're revealed, even though they've never met this person in um, in reality before? Yes, Keith, that is true. Oh, that's good. By the way, I'm keeping you, I'm keeping your seat warm tonight. <laughs> that's all right. You're, you're welcome to take my seat anytime I'm out in the field, Keith. Yeah. It brings a bit of class to the show that we're usually lacking. <laughs> and yeah, well, especially when I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> Your show has started to air on Ghost or Near when you were the guest, and uh, it looks and sounds great. You are a fantastic guest, I must say. We really appreciated you coming on our show and uh, enlightening us. Oh, not a problem. I, I thoroughly enjoy being on your show, Keith. And we're looking forward to being uh, uploaded on our website so everybody all over the world can see it. All right, cool. And, and it must be nice to be on a show where you're actually welcomed instead of attacked. <laughs> <laughs> On a cable access one, yeah. Yes, instead of the first words out of the mouth, what is a scientist doing investigating the paranormal? So My job, and that, that was my exact response, if I recall. That was, it was your exact response. Now, uh, one question I do have is, uh, getting back to the idea of these, of these, um, I, I don't want to say pre-earthly meetings uh, while under abduction, is there ever instances in your research where somebody has a memory of being abducted and meeting somebody while being abducted and then tries to search that person out afterward? Yes. Okay. So it does run the gamut of, you know... Well, that's one of the common factors with these same cases that I'm talking about. You know, it's like, I know I, this, I know this person. I wish I really could meet this person. I mean, you don't know where and where, how to search for them or whatever. It's just that in some cases, they wind up eventually meeting. There's definitely... Uh... Definitely a whole lot going on there. And so it seems like that whatever, so maybe these, if you want to use these as a way to try to determine what these beings are doing, maybe it isn't a negative reason why people are being abducted. Maybe it is something positive, and they, are trying, cases, to, yeah. they are trying to affect uh, change for the, for the good. Yeah, in some cases, yes. I guess they could put eHarmony out of business eventually, huh? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, uh, I think they probably have more successful matches than eHarmony. Well, like one in particular that I know, they a uh, couple got a chance to meet each other, got married, and then wound up getting divorced. But I think the divorce wound up having more to do with what was happening with other humans interfering with their relationship, not so much mm -hmm. uh, the ETs. Now, have either Anna or Beth uh, been abducted since they met in 1987? Yes. Okay, so Their last abduction happened in uh, December of 19, I mean, sorry, happened in December 2005. So it's still rather frequent. Well, not as frequent as it was. Now, yes, still occurs. But they have come to realize that they're being abducted, uh, you know, while they were still being abducted? Yes. Uh, now, the, now, what's interesting with these cases, now these cases are called Mickey and Baby Ann cases, uh, and that has to do with a particular case that started the whole thing of this particular type. But uh, with the interesting thing with these cases is, number one, that they're becoming more frequent. Number two, that they're becoming more known by the individuals, the Mickeys and the Baby Hands, and they remember each other more often. And, and so 
My question is, when they do have these realizations that they're being abducted now, what happens if Beth or Anna are abducted? Are they more questioning to what's going on? Are they more accepting to what's going on? Generally more accepting. And can they ask questions of these beings? or? or well, you, as best as you can ask them questions, whether they answer you or whether they give you a truthful answer may be what's to be determined. But most of the time they they give you you don't need to know or or give you an answer that doesn't mean anything. Because unfortunately, I mean, I guess I'm operating a bit in the dark here, but I thought that as people realize they're being abducted, then their increase, it decreases their chances of being abducted because that's why the people that are out there no. saying, take me, take me, never get taken. Not necessarily. Most abductees, genuine, genuine abductees, are the type of people that would not wish this type of thing on their worst enemy. Now, Matt, okay. uh, is, are these abductions taking place on a physical level or a metaphysical level? Oh, very physical. In most cases, very physical. Now, that was the other thing I was going to mention about the Mickey and Baby Ann cases. Especially once these two individuals meet, dollars to donuts and more times when they're abducted after they meet and they're living together or they're together, it's witnessed. Their abductions are witnessed by outside observers. Both of these people being taken. Are they ever recorded? Yes. On video or, or something? Uh, like the, on these of uh, these particular types, I believe there's one or two uh, supposed recordings, but there's hundreds of uh, eyewitnesses of of these events happening. Yeah, of Mickey and Baby Ann's. Uh, in other words, people that have been brought together by them and being taken together and have been witnessed by other people. Right. Hence well, the, the term in Bud Hopkins' book, Witnessed. All right, well, thank you for checking in with us down in New York. And tell everybody we said hello. We're just about out of time. Uh, before uh, we wrap up the show, I want to say happy anniversary to you, Matt, since tomorrow, actually in three minutes, will be our one-year anniversary here at Spooky South Coast. Cool. So, well, like I said, I'm hanging out here with Bud Hopkins. Um, he says hello, by the way. Liz is a young lady friend. Leslie Kane says hello. Dave Jacobs who's also here, says hello. And, of course, Peter says hello, and he wants to come back on as soon as he can when he can They're get the rest of his stuff. Any one of them is welcome back anytime. Uh, maybe someday we'll even get them all on at one time. And uh, we, we thank you for going down and reporting to us. And Keith yeah, Johnson, no problem. we thank and you. And I'd for... like to thank Keith for uh, sitting in for me. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure on this anniversary show. And uh, we'll definitely have Keith back in the future. All our listeners know that he's an integral part of what we do here. Uh, make sure you check out his website, nearparanormal.com, and you can check out all his shows there and keep up to date with his classes. February 16th here in New Bedford and February 2nd uh, in Providence. And uh, keep up to date with all the information there. Uh, next week we'll be back with Dr. Lewis Turry talking 2007 predictions. We'll talk to you then. Stay spectacular, everybody. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow. Tomorrow.